God of promise. Last week, we looked at the message of the former prophets. I remember that was the Hebrew title for those Old Testament books of, of history, as we'd call it. And this evening, I want to say something not about the former prophets, but about the latter prophets, the people that we would ordinarily associate with the word prophet, uh, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and, and the minor prophets. In the past century, there has been much made of the prophets as being forth-tellers rather than foretellers. Uh, what people have emphasized is that the prophets were men of their own generation. They were given a message from God, but a message that related to the circumstances of their own day. Uh, they came and were dealing with current affairs. And very often you find that the message they had to present uh, was one of scathing indictment of the Lord's people because of the injustice, because of the oppression that had become prevalent in Judah and in Israel. And so there are those who say the prophetic task is to bring the people back to loyalty to the Lord and his covenant. And the prophetic message is one of the, the need for repentance, the need for heart commitment to the Lord, and walking once more according to the injunctions of the covenant. Now, I don't want to emphasize those, I don't want to minimize those emphases of the prophetic ministry. Undoubtedly, that is a, a very major part of what's presented to us in Scripture in the message of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But the trend has gone too far. The trend towards emphasizing the prophet as the fourth teller who proclaimed the critique of the Lord into the situation of his own day. It's gone too far. And what I'm wanting to emphasize this evening, what I want to think about, is the other side of the prophet's ministry. Because the prophets were those who had been admitted into the counsel of God. They had heard God speak. Remember how Isaiah described the scene. He saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Or remember how Jeremiah challenged the false prophets of his day and said of the false prophets, which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? And in uttering that challenge, Jeremiah is making the claim, I have stood in the counsel of the Lord. I have listened. I have heard his word. And what I now proclaim to you is from the Lord himself. And against that background, against the background of the prophet as one who has been divinely brought into God's counsel, the prophet as the one who has heard the secrets of God, there is no difficulty in appreciating the prophet as a foreteller. 
the prophet with a word to say regarding the future. And it's wrong to think of the prophet as just someone who's little better than an informed and perceptive commentator on events of his own day. The prophet is not to be thought of in the same way as we might think of some of the, the more astute political commentators that you see on television. God's prophet had unique access to the future. And he revealed what had been told to him in the first place, not to satisfy the idle curiosity of people in his own generation or in ours. He, what he revealed, or what he was given to tell regarding the future, uh, was given to further God's purpose. God's people are a people with a future. God's people have a future because God made promises to them. It's not just a matter of the people of Israel being warned that their disobedience would take them away from enjoying God's blessing. The people of Israel were informed of God's promises. And they were informed of them so that they might be allured, that they might be drawn back to covenant obedience. There's the carrot as well as the stick in the approach that God uses. That's what we see in Hosea chapter 2 verse 14. I am now going to allure her in reference to God's people. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. But the promises were also part of the prophetic message. Because although there had been widespread defection from the standards of the covenant, there were still those who remained loyal. Even in the blackest of moments, there was still the remnant, as they're so often called in Scripture. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, had left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And for the remnant, for those who were living in trying, difficult circumstances, God used the ministry of the prophets as a means of encouragement. And that encouragement came by stirring up their minds once more to consider what would be the fulfillment of the grand and glorious promises that God had committed himself to. In days when the society around them was bleak, in days when there was rebellion on every side, God encouraged his people by setting before them grand promise, grand prophecies regarding the fulfillment of his promise. And that, I think, for instance, helps to explain the later prophecies of Isaiah, written probably during the dark days of Manasseh's apostasy, and written in the first place to provide encouragement uh, for the trapped and beleaguered minority that remained faithful to the Lord in those dark days. Now, it's that picture of future divine blessing, the promised blessing that I want to focus on this evening. The desire for some future age, some future golden age, 
isn't something that's confined to Scripture. If you look round the world, you'll find it in many cultures. Even the picture of a future king, whose reign was going to begin a time of unparalleled blessing, even that picture isn't one that's unique to Israel. Many texts from the ancient world, from the ancient Near East, talk of some coming king who would remove present troubles, who would banish injustice, who would usher in a golden age in which enemies would be subdued and there would be bountiful provision for all to enjoy. However, as one perceptive writer and messianic prophecies reminded us, these ancient pagan messianic expectations were as different from biblical messianic promises as modern atheistic expectations are from biblically informed expectations regarding the second coming of the Lord. Because the man, humanity's own view of some future age of blessing is based on a totally different set of presuppositions. The church's view of the future is one that is focused on the promise of God. And that promise of God has a future presented in it that is not some earthly utopia. It's not something that focuses merely on absence of enemies and provision of bounty. It is always a future that focuses on God himself. Even the disciples of our Lord had erroneous expectations at one stage regarding the future. Uh, when they asked the risen Lord, at how, when was he going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They'd fallen into the this worldly thinking uh, about the future. They were looking for a political kingdom in the same way as the Jews of their day were. The focus of their expectation was not God-oriented. What God promised is especially focused on the figure of the Messiah. And it's the figure of a Messiah whose task is to bring the world back into a right relationship with God. And when we therefore look at the God of promise, we are looking at the God who has promised a Messiah. And he has promised a Messiah who is not only a great figure in himself, but a great figure who will perform a great work. Now, this term Messiah is not really all that common in the Old Testament. The word itself denotes an anointed one. The Greek word Christ is the exact equivalent, an anointed one. And although the word Messiah doesn't appear very often, in fact in some modern translations doesn't appear at all in the Old Testament, the idea of an anointed one is something that's very significant in the world of the Old Testament and in Old Testament thought. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, there's even a considerable body of evidence to show that prophets were anointed. And this anointing 
signified their being set apart to a divinely appointed task. In this connection, there's there's one passage that people often find perplexing. You'll find it at the beginning of the 45th chapter of Isaiah, where we find, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor. This is what the Lord says to his anointed and to his Messiah. And we're immediately looking at these words with Christian spectacles on, uh, thinking in terms of Jesus, thinking in terms of the Messiah as we know it. And it continues to Cyrus. And who was Cyrus? He was the king of Persia. Cyrus was the the one who came to power and um, brought an end to the Babylonian Empire. However, this verse, in its very perplexity, sheds considerable light on what it meant in Old Testament times to say that one was anointed. We have in what's said in this part of Isaiah, the essence of what is meant by an anointed one. An anointed one is firstly someone who is an individual of God's choice. Back in chapter 41, uh, God said of this king, this Persian king who was going to come, in verse 25 of that chapter, I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. And here in chapter 45, it's Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. He is the one who in verse 4 is, I call you by name. He is divinely summoned. So an anointed one is one of God's choice. And he is also one who is given a particular task to perform in relation to the redemption of God's people. You see that in verse 13 of chapter 45. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, it says the Lord Almighty. Cyrus, the anointed one, is divinely given the task of rebuilding the city and setting God's people who were in exile free. So that the anointed one has a task in relation to the redemption of God's people. He is also one who is given dominion over those who have oppressed God's people and who have been hostile to them. And that's what's set out in chapter 47, where we have the the downfall of Babylon uh, described. And that devastation came on the Babylonian Empire as a result of what Cyrus uh, did. Indeed, it's not just those who are the enemies, those who have oppressed God's people, uh, who are uh, brought under the dominion of the anointed one. It extends to all nations. That's what's there in the beginning of chapter 45. Subdue nations before him, strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut 
I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. And it's very clear throughout all this that this anointed one is the agent of the Lord. Although he's given this dominion, dominion over those who oppressed the Lord's people, dominion over nations more generally, it's all because the Lord is working through him. And in all that, there can be little doubt that we have a prevision of what would become eminently true of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Messiah is the one who is the man of God's choice, who is given a particular role in relation to the redemption of God's people, who is given dominion over their enemies, indeed over all people, and whose work is God's work, the work that the Lord does through him. So the question arises, where does the notion of this coming Messiah first arise? We accept that this is there in Scripture, but can we follow it through? Can we follow it back and see how it originated, see where it comes from? In looking through the Old Testament, one very useful thing is to distinguish between those passages that are narrowly messianic and those that are more broadly so. Narrowly messianic passages are those that refer to the Messiah as a person, refer to the Lord's anointed, who in in its highest sense of the term is the one that God has designated to fulfill his promise. But as you read the Old Testament, you'll also find many other passages that describe times of future blessing. And surprisingly, you find in them no direct mention of the Messiah. One passage that I am often struck by in this respect is one of the best known, most quoted passages uh, from the Old Testament, most quoted in the New Testament, and that is the, the New Covenant passage from Jeremiah 31. The time is, Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers. And God goes on and describes it. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. But there's no direct mention in that passage of a messianic figure. The future promise, the promise of blessing to come, is divinely given and divinely stated, and yet in that passage and in quite a number of others as well, It is a broader picture. Salvation is going to be provided. There's going to be a time when God's will is known. There's going to be a time of bliss in the coming kingdom. Now, how does one relate these two types of passage? 
In modern scholarship, there's an ongoing debate about which comes first. Is it the passages that relate to the Messiah as an individual, or is it the view of a future time of blessing? Modern scholarship very much goes for the idea that the future time of blessing is perhaps not really understood as being messianic until after the Old Testament's written. That those texts that we've been reading of, uh, mentioning of a future time of blessing, are, are not really messianic uh, until they're reinterpreted at a later date. Indeed, they argue very strongly that the idea of a Messiah, the idea of one who was going to come and deliver the Lord's people, is an idea that itself is very late and comes out of Israel and Judah's frustration with the mess their kings made of ruling over them. Uh, The idea that is commonly presented is one whereby out of the the frustration and the debacle of the downfall first of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there arose a desire for one king who would come, a king who would really live up uh, to what the people wanted as a king. And that gradually in the intertestamental period, Uh, When the Messiah is talked about a lot by the Jews, uh, promises of times of future blessing began to be attached uh, to this messianic figure. The scriptural evidence is quite opposed to that. One of the things that we have to get very clear in approaching the Old Testament and looking at the messianic prophecies there is that it's not a late idea, that it is not something that arose because of frustration with the failures of Israel's kings. And indeed, as far as I can see, the picture is almost the reverse of the the modern picture, that at first it is the broad picture of future blessing that Scripture presents, and that it is increasingly made clear over time that that future blessing focuses on a single individual. And that is one of the great truths that we have to appreciate in reading through the Old Testament, that God's revelation of his purposes and of his promise was not instantaneous. There was light given but it was light as in the dawn. It was clear, but it was still by no means complete. And throughout the Old Testament, we find a process going on whereby God gives ever-increasing clarity regarding his purposes until what is at first in seed form matures and becomes complete with the coming of Jesus Christ himself. One of the tests that scripture gives for the the truthfulness of a prophet's words was whether or not they conformed to what God had previously revealed. There were going to be false prophets and the people were to test them. And the test was based on this idea of God's revelation moving forward and growing from a certain base. What the prophet says will be true 
if it accords with what's been said before. What the prophet said, the prophet can be accepted as a true prophet of the Lord when he stands in continuity with the developing pattern of God's revelation. And that revelation was not some timeless abstraction uh, from the physical and spiritual reality of the day in which it was given. It was shaped to further God's purposes. Not just as a static deposit. When God revealed more of the light, it was so that it could be a dynamic influence, molding the response of his people, leading to greater loyalty. When they were told more and more about the knowledge, given more and more knowledge about the future Messiah, it wasn't a detached promise. Oh, that's something that's going to happen a long time hence. True, but not relevant. It was a vital part of what stimulated them to faithfulness and loyalty in the often very difficult circumstances in which they found themselves. Well, I've talked round it. Well, let's come back to the question again. Where do we go to find the start of messianic revelation? And I think the answer has to be we have to go back to the garden. We have to go back to the first set of words that the Lord uttered to fallen humanity. We find it in Genesis 3.15. In the verse that's become known as the Protevangelium, the first gospel. God is, in fact, not even actually at this point speaking directly to Adam and Eve. He's actually speaking to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Whenever I open a commentary on Genesis, I always go and see what they say about Genesis 3.15. Because there are many who refuse to find in this verse anything more than a story that's been told to show why people don't like snakes. <laughs> and when I find that in a commentary, I think I've got the measure of the commentator. This verse is profound. It's also obscure. It's portraying the future. It is setting the scene for the rest, not only of scripture, but the rest of history. But it is setting it in a way that is true to God's purpose of ever-increasing, accumulating a revelation. What God said there has never been withdrawn. It's never been changed. But it has been progressively clarified. In one respect, it was a grand message. Because what had just happened was a, an unholy alliance uh, between the serpent and the woman. And God is here imposing a divergence. He's imposing a break. I will put enmity 
This unholy alliance is not going to be allowed to proceed. I will impose hostility between those who had been going along the pathway away from God together. And it's also not hostility without an end. In the very terms of God's first word, there is a view that this hostility will lead on to a scene where the head of the serpent will be crushed. It is a picture of a goal being reached, a victory being won. And it's fairly clearly stated, even though there is mention of the striking, you will strike his heel, you the serpent will strike his heel, that that's um, a much less um, fatal thing than crushing of the serpent's head. It's fairly clearly intimated which of the two sides are going to obtain the final victory. It's here in this verse that I think we have the first, in general sense, messianic prophecy. Now, I know you're very generous in the amount of time you allot me. And the temptation is very great to say, right, well, that's the start. Now let's go through every other verse that's a messianic prophecy. And then you look at the big, thick volumes that have been written on messianic prophecy, and you suddenly realize there's not going to be time for that. What then is it that I want to say to you about the rest of messianic prophecy? Well, what I'm trying to do just this evening is to look at the rest of messianic prophecy by way of a framework to indicate to you a number of features that are worth looking out for, uh, that are a number of ways of analyzing messianic prophecy uh, that can add depth of understanding uh, to these passages of the Old Testament. I'm going to start and focus on Genesis 3.15 and move forward from it uh, a number of times. But what I want to emphasize more than anything else is that when you look at messianic prophecy, and these are passages that are often quoted, many of them are very familiar passages, we should ask, first of all, is this passage telling us something about the person of the Messiah or about the work of the Messiah? And when we look at the passage and we say, well, it's about the person of the Messiah, we can then ask the question, is it emphasizing that he is human Or is it emphasizing that he is divine? Or both? When we have a a vision given us of the coming Messiah, and we see it's focusing on who the Messiah is, we have to look and say, is this building up the picture of the Messiah in his humanity or in his deity? And when we look at a messianic prophecy and we find in it mention being made of the Messiah's work, what it is that he does as distinct from who he is, then I think the old reform division of the work of Christ goes a long way towards clarifying the situation. Is it as a prophet, a priest, or a king? When we see the work of Christ described in the Old Testament, there are these three aspects that we have to ask about. 
And probably we have to add a fourth. Prophet, priest and king falls short. I think you've got to add victim as well. Now, using that as our framework, what can we say about messianic prophecy? Well, if we go back to Genesis 3.15, we certainly have here the beginning of the the message regarding the humanity of the Messiah. There is indeed a measure of obscurity as to whether a single person, in fact, is being talked about in this verse. The Hebrew word for seed or offspring can be taken as a collective or as a singular. And indeed, that, that... merging of the one and the many lies behind the way in which Paul can later on use this passage uh, in Galatians 3.16 that the promise was not towards seeds as many but towards seed this word seed uh, has got this collective and individual aspect to it indeed in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20 Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan Under your feet. Implying that this prophecy is not uh, totally finished uh, in the work of Christ. Uh, That it is a prophecy that takes on board uh, seed, not just seed the individual, but seed the individual and the many whom he represents uh, who will enjoy this final victory. But undoubtedly, here in this passage, Adam and Eve were being told that the victory over their fallen situation was not going to come by some piece of magic from heaven. It was something that was going to be worked out through Eve's offspring. Offspring, whether the individual or the collective, it was through humanity that salvation was going to be worked out for humanity. He, your seed, will crush the serpent's head. And the theme of the Messiah's humanity is further developed in subsequent epochs of divine revelation. Find it again, say, in Noah's prophecy, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Some argue that even in the following verse we should translate may he, that is the Lord, dwell in the tents of Shem rather than may Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem as many translations have it. But whether we do that or not in verse 27, verse 26 is showing that in a particular way the divine blessing is going to be associated with the line of Shem. And this way in which the blessing is going to be worked out is further narrowed when it's revealed to Abraham that he is the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. Through you, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Genesis 22, verse 18, one of many passages that narrow the line down from one of the seed of the woman through the line of Shem, to the descendants of Abraham. Indeed, in Jacob's final blessing, 
uh, at the end in Genesis 49, the end of Genesis, chapter 49, verse 10, the line narrows down once more to the line of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. We can therefore follow the development, the focus on the humanity of the coming Messiah. And it goes one stage further in the Davidic covenant. Not just in Nathan's prophecy in Second Samuel 7, but also in the Psalms that reflect on it. The Messiah is more particularly going to be the offspring of David. In his last words, David related his messianic expectation. It's one of those passages we were looking at last week in a different context. He said, Has God not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? Uh, That word that's rendered there in the NIV, bring to fruition, is send forth a shoot. And that use of the word shoot in 2 Samuel 23, 5 is the background to the later prophetic use of the term shoot or branch. Some of the translations have sprout. It doesn't quite resonate so well. It's actually... A very It doesn't have those overtones in Hebrew, but it does when you translate it that way into English. And that, that language of the branch or the shoot for the coming Messiah focuses back on the Second Samuel 23, 5. And it looks on the branch particularly as the offspring of David. It's a term that is focusing more on the humanity of the Messiah than anything else. So we can see throughout the Old Testament time and again that the humanity of the Messiah is brought before us. But what about the deity of the Messiah? It really seems to await the time of David before the deity of the Messiah is clearly brought out. That seems to have been part of the purpose that God had in allowing the monarchy to be instituted in Israel. To give greater revelation regarding the king, the messianic king who would come. We'll look at the king idea in just a moment. And with the monarchy, there came, through David himself, a burgeoning of psalmody. In Israel. It was a time not only when there was more revelation from God, but it was it's a time when we're permitted to see how the people understood and praised God for the revelation he'd given. And if you look at the book of Psalms, you can find from around the early monarchy many Psalms that point towards the deity of the Messiah. One could think of Psalm 2. Many modern commentators argue that it's composed at the coronation of some unspecified human king. But the very language of the psalm points strongly 
towards it having an import far beyond that. This is a psalm that is talking about kings of the earth taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed one, his Messiah. And we know from scripture that David was a prophet. And there's no doubt that he could have had revealed to him that there was this coming anointed one uh, who was also divine. And particularly one would focus in verse 7 of the psalm, uh, where it's recorded that the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. The NIV reads its footnote at that point, today I have begotten you. I, I know begotten isn't modern English, but What's being said there in that verse of the psalm was something that was never said of any merely human king. Oh yes, it's said of the kings that God says, I will be their father and they they will be, or he will be my son. But the language, I, today I have begotten thee. Today I have begotten you. I better modernize my English. Today I have begotten you is never used of any merely human king. And this is a king who is given the promise, ask of me and I'll give for your inheritance the ends of the earth. Uh, The picture is one uh, that cannot be satisfied by any merely human king. The anointed one who is being spoken of here is directly addressed as kiss the son, lest in his ire you perish from the way. Psalm 45 also has that verse, much disputed over. Verse 7, where in the midst of what seems to be a description of a marriage, the psalmist, who in this case is not David, the, the psalmist is drawn beyond the human marriage that he seems to be describing and utters the words, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Did I say it was verse 7 just now? That's because it's verse 7 in the Hebrew, just showing off. It's verse 6 in the English. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And that language, even though there, the conjectural ingenuity of various commentators has been applied to it in many ways, that language will not go away. Because that's the way it's cited in Hebrews, uh, in the first chapter. It is addressing this kingly figure as God himself. And of course there's Psalm 110. Uh, Psalm 110 where David is given the vision of the, the, the anointed king. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David is talking of someone superior to him himself. The argument's the argument of Jesus. David is talking of one superior to himself and yet who is distinct from the Lord, distinct from God, and is elevated to the superhuman dignity of being at the right hand of the Lord. In Psalms such as these, we can see the people being taught that there was a greater king to come, a king who was also divine. How could that make sense to them? It seems very often as if even conservative 
scholars are prepared to say, well, this probably wasn't really known about in Old Testament times. Although these things were revealed, people didn't really understand them. And it had to wait for the coming of Christ before these things were really made clear. There is a lot of truth in that. But yet, I don't think we should write off the spiritual insight that was given to the Old Testament church. They may not, they did not, they could not articulate it in the way in which later church creeds were to, in the light of the Incarnation. But there were many things in the Old Testament that would not have made them at all surprised at this thought of a king who would be human and divine. Just to mention one, the figure of the the angel of the Lord. That figure who appears time and again from the book of Genesis on who comes and who speaks of the Lord as someone other than himself, and yet the Lord gives testimony regarding the angel that my name is in him, in Exodus 23, 21. And to say my name is in him is very much in Old Testament terms, not just to say he is the one who represents me, but he is the one in whom my essential character is to be found. The idea that in some way God was going to appear in human form was something that the Old Testament church was being educated into, was being given ever-increasing light on. They didn't totally grasp the truth of the Incarnation, do we? But they were being given ever-increasing light on it. And therefore it's not surprising that we find in the prophets grand visions of the coming one. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, we find him addressed as Emmanuel, God with us. And in the context of the passage, it's clear that that's going far beyond just saying that Isaiah thought God was providentially going to be with his people. It is rather the case that it's the prophet is being expressing the time that is going to be when in the supreme fashion, in the truest manner possible, uh, through this child who will be born, God will presence himself with his people. And that's the theme of the four chapters that follow. That's the theme uh, where it's brought out that Emmanuel is the owner of the land. The messianic child is expressly equated with the Lord God Almighty in chapter 9, verse 6. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of course, the evidence is so clear, it's a challenge to those who don't want to believe it. And you'll find many try to evade the implication. He will be called Mighty God. And they'll say, oh, it just means something like godlike hero. He'll be called a great man. Well, as often as not, Scripture provides its own answer to expedients like that. And if you read on into Isaiah chapter 10, you find the self-same words repeated in chapter 10, verse 21. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. The same words, mighty God, and it's not just in English, that's a 
true reflection of the original Hebrew, mighty God is in chapter 9, verse 6. And uh, you can't really make sense of a remnant will return uh, to the godlike hero in chapter 10, verse 21. The use of I- these words is used by Isaiah only a short uh, time later indicate very clearly uh, that this translation, mighty God, is the correct translation. And as we read on, and the passages are all well known, I don't want to go into each and every one of them just now, we find many others that present us with the elevated dignity, superhuman dignity, divine dignity of the coming Messiah. I just mentioned Jeremiah 23, verse 6. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now that seems as translated and there's a great deal of evidence to support the translation, the Lord our righteousness, a very clear description, not only of the deity of the messianic figure, but also of what he is going to provide. It is possible grammatically to translate it, the Lord is our righteousness. But even if one does that, the very function of conveying God's righteousness to his people suggests the superhuman character of the Messiah. So we can go down through the Old Testament. We see passages that relate the humanity of the Messiah. We see passages that relate the divinity of the Messiah. Let us, just for a moment or two, consider the other side of the situation, and that is the work of the Messiah. And let's go back to the Protevangelium, back to Genesis 3.15 again. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There is a picture of effort, a picture of suffering, it's not the, the, the saying just that there is going to be a coming seed and that very fact of him coming will ensure the restoration of fellowship with God. He is coming and he is going to engage in conflict. He is coming and it's going to be costly for him. It is a picture of work that has to be accomplished Now, in that respect, we can use the traditional categories of prophet, priest, and king. We have, to a large extent, seen something of the kingly role of the Messiah in those chapters in Isaiah, chapters 7 on to 11. Because the kingly role of the Messiah is the one that receives perhaps more emphasis than the others in the Old Testament. The prophetic role of the Messiah can be seen in those passages where it's emphasized that he is the one who is going to relay God's word, set up the standards that God requires. And there is a very interesting exercise that starts off in the book of Deuteronomy and in chapter 18, where you find the prophetic constitution for Israel set out in verses 14 to 22. And in verse 15, you have the words, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me 
from among your own brothers. If you just read Deuteronomy, you might not very well see that as a messianic prophecy. In many ways it looks as if what's being talked about there is the order, the prophetic order that God was going to provide for his people throughout Old Testament times. People like Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Micah and the other prophets. But those words are quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 3 in reference to Christ. Hmm. I should have put the verse down as well. Um, Verse 22. For Moses said... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Looking back to that very passage in Deuteronomy and finding it fulfilled in Christ. So that there is an exercise there that Christ is the one, even in the Old Testament, who is seen as the word is seen as revealing what God requires. The kingly role, the prophetic role, but we also have the priestly role of the Messiah. And it was, it's at that point that I said earlier, we've really got to make a distinction that isn't really covered by the prophet, priest, king. Because the priest was the one who offered messianic prophecy in the Old Testament also brings to us the truth that the Messiah is the victim who is offered other priests offer something other than themselves he is the priest who offers himself and it is that grand truth that begins to have light thrown on it as we read through the Old Testament. The priestly role, well, that's in Psalm 110. A priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. One who would be priest and king at the same time. That is picked up in a number of other passages, sometimes quite clearly, as in Zechariah, chapter 6 and verse 13 where we have presented to us this figure of the branch. The branch, remember, that is speaking very much of the offspring of David. He will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Verse 13 of chapter 6 of Zechariah. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne And there will be harmony between the two. It is a picture of the one who is priest and on his throne king. The priests of Israel had no thrones to sit on. The throne was where the king was found. And there in Zechariah 6.13 we have the branch as a priest on his throne drawing together as happens more and more often in later prophecy, the various strands of messianic prophecy, as you get closer and closer to coming of Christ, they come together, they begin to be brought together by God. 
But can I just quote another one? Um, where this idea of the priest who is also a king is found. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 21. Their leader will be one of their own. It's speaking of God's restored people. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? Now that might not immediately strike us as relevant. But this language of bringing near and bringing close is Old Testament language that relates to priests. Those who were allowed to come close to the Lord were especially the high priest allowed to come once a year into the most holy place. The language of bringing near, the language of coming close is language in Old Testament years that's priestly. And here we see Jeremiah aware that this is true of their leader. This is true of their ruler. This is a merging of uh, the priestly and the kingly office. But what about the other side? Not only is Christ the priest who has the the right of access, the priest who rules in the temple, the priest who presents uh, the offering, he is himself the victim. And that had been there right from the start. He is the one who is going to suffer. He is the one who is going to be struck at on the heel by the serpent. It's a picture of a blow, it's a picture of a grievous blow, but not a totally and finally fatal blow. And that is brought forward in other areas. It's not something that immediately is developed. I think the next place where you get more of it is in those psalms of the righteous sufferer. Psalm like Psalm 22, quoted by our Lord on the cross. There are many other psalms of the righteous sufferer, but Psalm 22 is unique. Because there's no hint in Psalm 22 that the speaker is conscious of personal sin. There's no confession of sin. There is nothing in Psalm 22 to suggest that there was need of uh, repentance on the part of the speaker. The words seem to point directly to Christ himself. And yet, as you read Psalm 22... It's not linked into the rest of Messianic prophecy. It's a psalm of the righteous sufferer. It's a psalm that comes true in Christ. And yet there's no hint in the words of the psalm that this has to be seen as part of the Messianic task. The only hint is in the fact that it's a psalm of David and that David was the king. And David was the one who was expressing these words. It's something that took some time before it became was made clear to the people of God. Indeed, I don't think it really was categorically made clear until Isaiah 53, where we find it said of the servant, another messianic figure, he made himself an offering for sin, a guilt offering, uh, depending on the translation you're looking at. But there we see... This one, 
figure who is going to come as one who is suffering, one who is making an offering on behalf of those uh, who are his. Oh, I know it's also true that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ. And looking back on them, we can now see Christ in those sacrifices. I'm not so sure that that was available to the Old Testament uh, worshipper. I know people differ with me on that, uh, but I, I, I can't... I don't feel I'm confident in saying that this was something that had been directly revealed until we come to Isaiah's prophecy. One of the most significant passages in the Old Testament regarding the priestly work of the Messiah is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. But it's talking in verses 25 and 26 specifically of the Messiah. And he's assigned a six-fold ministry. Seventy-sevens or seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. The three negative aspects, to atone for wickedness, to pay the ransom price for wickedness. And then the three positive aspects, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the Most Holy. Here the Messiah is presented as the one who is going to confirm a covenant with many, putting an end to the sacrifice and offering of the Old Testament by what he himself is able to do. These six are the marks of the Messianic Age, sin abolished and forgiven, introduction of an everlasting harmony between heaven and earth and between God and his people. And it's on this note I'd like to end, because I mentioned earlier the narrower and the broader messianic picture. And that's a very helpful distinction, provided we don't separate them too far. We've got to see the messianic prophecies as based on the protevangelium, coming out of the word of God the Creator who will not let sin and the serpent have the final word on the destiny of his creation. God the creator who intervenes and presents the message of his grace right at the start. And it's in that, those terms that we can begin to see how the narrower and wider views of messianic prophecy can be brought together. What the Messiah does when he comes is in many ways to restore Eden. And that's why you get the broader pictures of a time of blessing that focus on prosperity. Prosperity as it should have been if man had never fallen. Something like Amos 9.13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. A picture of the desert becoming a fertile field and the fertile fields seem like a forest. Isaiah 32, 15. Psalm 72, verse 16. Let corn abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Pictures of prosperity. Pictures of unimaginable prosperity associated with the broader messianic picture. The Old Testament doesn't use the term uh, the second Adam. 
It waited for Paul to use it. But the truth of it is there in these broader pictures. Not just of prosperity, pictures of harmony in the created realm. That passage that was read in Isaiah 11 of the wolf living with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the goat, of the infant playing safely near the hole of the cobra. They will not harm or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A picture of creation restored in harmony. A picture also of the world of human relations brought back to harmony. One might think particularly of Isaiah 32, verses 1 to 8. A king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. And the rest of the passage, it talks about how the the fool will become noble, the uh, scoundrel will be highly respected, he who practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord will no longer be esteemed, and the scoundrel's schemes will be done away with. What's being pictured? It is a time when the curse brought on by the fall is reversed, when what is lost by man's fall is restored. And that is what Jesus was talking about when he said to his disciples that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He wasn't just talking about his person, Although he was talking about that in both human and divine. And he wasn't just narrowly confined to those passages that set him forth as prophet, priest, king and victim. He was also looking, I believe, to those passages that set forth in grand terms the future that the Lord has, the God of promise has for his people. A future that is procured for them through the Messiah. And through his work, because the God of creation will not let man's sin destroy his world. He will reclaim it. He will renew it. And he will renew it through the man whom he has sent, the divine Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Thank you very much indeed once again, Professor Mackay. We've time, some 15 minutes if we want to use them, to, uh, to have questions and comments and discussion. Um, and we've not been short of that in the last three sessions. I hope you don't disappoint us tonight. So I'm going to invite uh, someone to make the first comment or perhaps ask for clarification on anything which has been said. Yes, John. Uh, is there any uh, significance in that expression, in my holy mountain? Uh, and I noticed that expression is used many times. It was used by Abraham when he said, in the mount, or he was said of it, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And then in the Hebrews it goes on to say, we are come to Mount Zion. Uh, is that an expression that should be commented on at all? Yes. not quite sure where to begin. There's so much I want to say. Zion is distinguished as being the place where God made his presence known 
it is the place where the temple was built, where God came uh, and indwelt the temple. And God, the significance of my holy mountain is the mountain that is set apart from all other places on earth by being specially favoured with that visible sign of God's presence in it. And the new creation has that universalized, as it were. Whereas in Israel it was physically located on one definite site, in New Testament times that truth is now found wherever God's people are. You are my temple. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that in spirit presence in the believer and in the believing community is the manifestation of God's presence now. And of course, that, that is just a, an earnest, a down payment, a first installment of the, the final and total um, presence of God. And that, that's why the land is so significant in the Old Testament. Uh, depends who I'm talking to, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it anyhow. Um, the land is significant because it was the land that God was going to presence himself in. Palestine had no significance apart from the temple. Palestine, that the full focus of the promised land was because God was going to choose a place to set his name there, that he was going to specially own as, as his own. And in that respect, the, the holy land is in sort of halfway towards um, the new heavens and the new earth. It's a symbol, it's a sign of God coming and presencing himself with his redeemed people and they enjoying a measure of fellowship then with him, a measure that is now greater and a measure that will be as complete as it can possibly be for finite created beings to enjoy in heaven hereafter. And when it's then said that in my holy mountain... This is this picture of harmony, this picture of the, the animals no longer uh, preying on each other, no longer being a threat to humanity. Locating it on my holy mountain is Old Testament language. It is using what was familiar to Israel to say in the place where God is present, where God's creation is restored, this will be enjoyed. And in that very language, though it looks very limited, there is the key to the fact that it's in no way limited when it comes to be fully enjoyed. Right, yes. Um, this is not a particularly um, important point, I don't think, but it just struck me that you gave the threefold offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, king, and then you added victim, not as an office, I, I accept mm. that, but in some people's thinking, there were the four offices of judge as well, weren't there? Prophet, priest, king, judge. Is there any element of that in the prophetic references to Christ, do you think? I would personally tend to view the judges as um, halfway towards kingship. Uh, I, I don't... The judge was a... It's not just a legal officer... Uh, he was someone who had very considerable executive authority. And I would think that the all that can be said of the judge uh, can be said of the king. 
although more can be said of the king than of the judge. And that, yes, there are passages, particularly in Isaiah, uh, which talk about the servant uh, executing justice and judgment on the earth. Uh, that, that will come within the, the kingly office, the office of rule. Uh, I wouldn't particularly want to separate judge out from king in that respect. Yes, can you uh, clarify that uh, first prophecy that you mentioned was in uh, Genesis 3.15. Um, am I right in saying that I think that you were saying that the prophecy came from the fact that um, the saviour would come from man mm-hmm. and that also in verse 15 when it says he will crush your head, who's the he in that Yes, well, the who, who is the he is... Uh, um, a major problem. Undoubtedly, the he refers to the seed. There is no doubt that uh, between your seed and her seed, and that's Eve's seed, he, the, 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 that is a reference. But seed, and it's, it, it's not just a word for offspring, it's the word for corn or some you know, seed that you plant. It's the same word that's being used. Seed can be either of an individual or a collective term. And it's the case that when God imposes this hostility between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, it is not immediately evident whether the woman's seed are being looked on as many or as one. The fact that he follows it uh, is not, in fact, sufficient to uh, determine whether it's general or particular. The language of head and heel helps make it more particular, but I don't think that when it was originally spoken, it was designed to make that point clear. I think it's only as prophecy developed and greater, excuse me, greater light was given that it became very clear. But it's been understood as a messianic prophecy, um, well, certainly from the time of the Septuagint, the 3rd century BC, because when they came to translate it into Greek, they deliberately used a, a, a masculine pronoun for he at that point. But you'll find translations <clears throat> that translate it as he and she and it and they. Now, she's wrong because that's the Vulgate and they were after um, a reference to Mary. So I can get rid of that one. Um, they and he are both perfectly feasible grammatically so that there's an element of lack of clarity that becomes clear later and as later on uh, scripture makes very clear that is a reference to Christ but it's Christ as the head of his people and that was the point I was emphasizing in quoting Romans 16 where Paul is still seeing part of this prophecy of bruising him on the heel as something that was still going to be made true in the experience of the church later on. Now may the God of peace, if I've got it correctly, um, in Romans 16.20, is it not? Uh, Paul is the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In this translation, in others, it's a wish now. May the God of peace 
uh, crush Satan under your feet. It looks as if the full implications of the prophecy come true in Christ as head of his people rather than simply focus on Christ. And I'd like to argue that way because I want to take the hostility uh, between the two seeds as not stopping at the cross, culminating at the cross, you know, starting with Adam and Eve, culminating at the cross, and going right on uh, till the second coming. And that is part of this divinely imposed structure. That's why the church in every age can expect opposition. That's why life will never be easy, this side of the second coming, because it's part of the structure that God has placed that the seed of the woman, which is here used as the seed of those who uh, are drawn out of darkness into light, those who are saved, as distinct from the, the seed of the serpent, those who continue in the path that Eve began to walk down with the serpent, uh, that hostility is part of the structure of human history till the consummation. And so although this protevangelium focuses on Christ, as the, the one, as a seed who would come, I, I don't think it's exclusively exhausted by Christ. It's Christ and his people that are the, the total reference there. I don't know if that's helpful, but th- that, that's the best I can make of that particular passage. As Reg and then Brian's. I just uh, raise a general point. Huh? Yes. It seems that evangelical Christians today come into the Old Testament sometimes limit the truth they get out of it by interpreting it in terms of what the, uh, the author, the human author, understood or, or intended. Whereas you have been looking at the, the spiritual meaning against the, the backcloth of the, the whole of Scripture. I wonder whether you could give just very briefly a little encouragement to, to help us to, to see uh, to, to interpret, especially the Old Testament, in this spiritual manner uh, by the analogy of faith. Do you understand what I mean? I think we, we sometimes tend today to miss some of the spiritual depths by insisting on the, the thought, the intention of the uh, particular human author. I'm not sure you've put me in the right camp, but <laughs> for, for all that... Um, Scripture is both human and divine. But God never overpowers the human author. The, when the message is written, the human author uh, understands, although not necessarily understands exhaustively, what is being said. Uh, I get worried if by spiritual meaning you say that you can get something that the original human author had no inkling of. That, 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 that worries me. But if, you say, if what you're saying is that the original author, when he wrote these words, had only the first glimmering of an idea of what was meant and that it took subsequent revelation to clarify it, then, then I'm very happy with that. We can, we're now looking back, and we're looking back with the benefit of hindsight, which always makes it very much easier. Uh, it's therefore a very interesting exercise that I engage in a lot, uh, trying to 
see what it was that Abraham or Moses or whoever made of these words when they were originally given to them. What did they know from what we're told of previous divine revelation? That doesn't exhaust the meaning of the passage, but that gives us the base for it, and we can then see how subsequent revelation takes that on, clarifies it. Can I... I don't like the phrase, although I use it all the time in classes, theological trajectory. The, the idea is that God, God, God gave truth. And he doesn't give up on that truth. But he brings it up and forward and adds more and more light to it as time goes on. Looking back now, we can see a lot more of the full setting of the truth even though the original author, who was on the same trajectory, not a different one, it's not a different meaning, it's not, a, it's not going in for um, allegorical interpretation that can pull anything out of it, but it's the same organic continuity, but it was, well, let's put it this way. If you look at some of the seeds you plant, and if, like me, you sometimes get the two packets and you've got them and you particularly with these little sachets inside and they're not marked terribly clearly, you sometimes do wonder what it is you're putting in the ground because you know the seed doesn't bear all that much relationship looking at it to what fully and finally comes. In the same way, I think there's that analogy uh, in Scripture. That there is truth and it grows and it comes to fullness and those who are looking at it before it's come to fullness have an understanding, but not the complete understanding we now have. So that, I find that that analogy of the, the maturation of the plant, growth in that way, allows us to do justice to what they knew then, small though it was, its essential continuity with what finally comes, and yet the greatness and the completeness of that. All I was saying was that sometimes people don't do the looking back bit. You mentioned. Ah, yes. Sometimes people um, speak as if Abraham or Moses uh, lived after Pentecost. Is that what you mean? You know, it is not right to take the whole of New Testament truth and say that was available to them. It was not. The God, it's clearly shown in Scripture, gave greater and greater light. And there were many things that only came definitely established with the teaching and the life of Christ. Because you must remember Christ was the teacher, Christ is the prophet. And many of these passages I've been talking about tonight, I think only became accessible to the church because of the teaching that he himself gave, identifying them as messianic. Okay. One more question, I think, uh, Brian, and then that will have to be the end. Maybe a bit trivial, but uh, um, I was going back to Genesis three fifteen, and uh, I've been quite sure what he means by the, the serpent's seed. Uh, presumably, that's the devil. Uh, is it? I mean, the serpent is the devil. <coughs> so who is the, the devil's seed? Can you understand? I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a trivial question. Uh, there are one or two passages, and I literally mean one or two. Um, it's rather like the, the Hebrew use of the word son of. When you called someone son of something, you didn't necessarily mean 
um, a blood descendant of. Son of could also be used for uh, one who was uh, an apprentice to a craftsman, or one who shared the same characteristics as someone else. The word seed is used in two other passages of someone sharing the same characteristics. Uh, it would The reference to uh, your seed does not seem to be a reference to demons or, or, or you know, something. It's, it seems to be much more a division within humanity in terms of those who are following the path that the serpent would have them follow and those who are following the woman's path and the implicit assumption at that stage is that Eve has repented. That, and th- that's justified perhaps by Adam's later calling her the, the mother of all living. That th- there has already been uh, repentance there. Um, so that in terms of this use of seed, it is difficult, yes. Uh, but there, there are a n- small number of passages where seed is used of having the same characteristics, being of the same general family as... And here it seems to be on that basis that the division has been made. And the Lord said of the Pharisees that you are of your father, the devil. Yep, it's the same sort of language. Yes, that's right. Exactly the same sort of language.